so much for being at the panel. I'm Susanna Bartlow. I'm the director of the Women's Center and faculty in Women's and Gender Studies at Dickinson College, and I'm moderating the session. I'm also um, doing a little bit of double duty with Stephanie Gilmore, who's a colleague at Dickinson. We're co-presenting, and I um, stepped in to moderate the panel as well. So um, it's my pleasure to introduce the folks who are with me on the panel, and I'll do that. Um, I'll introduce everyone now and just give us an opportunity to kind of work through the papers and then to do some Q&A. Thanks so much for being here. Um, all the way on my right is Dara Silberstein. Um, Dara has a BA from Binghamton University, a JD from SUNY at Buffalo, also my alma mater, um, an MS and PhD from the New York State School of Industrial Labor Relations at Cornell. Uh, she's a US women's labor historian specializing in anti-discrimination laws, served as the executive director of the Women's Studies Program since 1996, and is currently a licensed attorney in New York State and has practiced in the areas of public, public interest law and labor law. Dara has participated in several community-based programs, including serving as a civil service commissioner for the city of Binghamton and a board member of Citizen Action in New York. To Dara's left is Leslie Simon. Um, Leslie, ha Leslie has a bio that's in the program um, and has shared also that after initially being a reluctant academic, um, she's found the perfect mix of the academy and activism in the community college setting. So she's very much looking forward to sharing how the program with the high schools has linked grassroots activism to work at the college. To Dara's left is Stephanie Gilmore, um, who is currently a fellow at Duke University and is assistant professor of women's and gender studies at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and a feminist activist. And then immediately to my right is uh, Geraldine Fisher. Um, it's best to say that after having coordinated the NWSA FIPSI project to improve service learning and women's studies in 1979 through 1981, the imprint has been firmly set. Since then, Geraldine's pedagogical priorities have featured the essential natural intersection between students' participation in the feminist world outside campus and women's and gender studies. So we'll begin with Dara. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, first, let me congratulate Barnard Center for Research. I think it's uh, terrific that we're doing a 40th uh, anniversary conference, and it means that we've done a lot in the past, and the fight is still ahead of us. Um, I'd also like to be a bit self-indulgent at this moment and thank my mom for coming to this. Um, <laughs> she, she, she truly was, you know, my role model in terms of activism and probably in some of my feminist ideology, and it's a real pleasure to have her here today, so thanks, Mom. Okay, so without much further ado, I want to talk to you today about um, a project that Women's Studies was a partner um, on in the past five years, and I'll describe that for you and, and, and what the main goal for us was in that process. Um, women's Studies programs at universities across the United States have engaged in powerful reconsiderations of their academic projects. The original impetus for many of these programs was to serve as the, quote, educational arm of the women's movement of the early 1970s. This effort led to pedagogical and curricular ex experimentation as feminist scholarship became a venue for contesting the canon by creating the spaces for women to exist as subjects and producers of knowledge. However, accepting the university as a site for feminist knowledge production has often included a quid pro quo, that feminist scholars must accept these institutions as legitimate, 
even if their interdisciplinarities stand as a critique of these environments. Indeed, some have argued it is a presumption of the a priori nature of disciplines as natural sites of knowledge production that marginalizes women's studies programs in general and feminist scholarship in particular. What then should women's studies programs do to create critical models that undermine orthodox masculinist positionalities of knowledge production vis-a-vis -vis the disciplines? This paper will suggest an alternative paradigm for knowledge production that embraces principles of social justice at its pedagogical core. Towards this end, the paper will describe an experiment currently underway at Binghamton University, which the Women's Studies Program developed in a partnership with local government and social justice agencies to create a community-based curriculum that promotes civic engagement. I will describe how this partnership has been the impetus for the creation of neighborhood assemblies throughout the city of Binghamton that provide city residents normally alienated from traditional venues uh, for political and economic resources, especially women and people of color, the tools they need to revitalize their communities. Within this context, the project of building the neighborhood assemblies parallels the challenges um, to concepts of knowledge and knowledge building practices that women's studies program face in claiming legitimacy within university environments. The literature makes clear that civic engagement projects of this type not only benefit the communities they serve, but they are also an effective means of advancing the academic experiences of students and faculty by enhancing service learning curriculum and supporting the scholarship. However, as this paper will suggest, these civic engagement projects serve a particularly powerful function in resituating women's studies within the context of current university paradigms for knowledge production. In doing so, they provide an alternative, and I would argue, feminist model that realigns the academic with social justice praxis, resulting in a reimagining of women's studies and the relevancy of its mission in university communities. The Women's Studies program at Binghamton University is one of the oldest in the country. Until recently, it has had no core faculty, and I have served as the program's director since the mid-90s. My own background is one as of an activist and intellectual. Before returning to graduate school, I worked several years as an attorney with legal services, and I was a labor organizer. My commitment then to women's studies is both intellectual and political. As many of you are aware, there has been much discussion about whether the project of women's studies is dead. After all, many disciplines now include scholarship on, um, on or about women, and some even understand the importance of the critical perspectives that feminist scholarship brings, not just to the woman question, but to the discipline as a whole. If that was all there was to women's studies, then one can see the inherent um, nature of our, 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 excuse me, our success includes our demise. Mm -hmm. I want to suggest that this model is based on an assimilationist approach towards the implementation and institutionalization of women's studies. Though we count ourselves as interdisciplinary, we nevertheless mimic disciplines in how we self-govern, develop curriculum for our students, and to a certain extent, judge the quality of feminist scholarship. I wanted to su suggest that this quandary to a certain extent has resulted from our disconnection from our activist roots. Our program began, our program of the civic engagement project began 
with a partnership with our local city government and a community, community organization. Binghamton is a community of about 48,000 people in which nearly one-fourth of the population lives in poverty. Though it once was home to uh, bustling manufacturing, uh, the EJ footwear was located there, and it was the birthplace of IBM, currently the university is the city's, the area's largest employer. In 2006, a new mayor was elected to office, largely supported by the Working Family Party. Um, for those of you who don't know the Working Families Party, it provides, I think, uh, uh, sort of outstanding candidates to the current uh, stable Republican-Democrat uh, candidates. Um, he and members of his administration were committed to opening access to government to residents traditionally disenfranchised from the political process. The neighborhood assemblies would be organized on a neighborhood basis, and general assemblies were going um, to be organized on a uh, quarterly basis so that everybody could come together and discuss their various priorities and projects. What we, we, we saw the neighborhood assembly as, a, as an opportunity to put into practice some of the feminist critique that had been useful in our scholarship particularly as it raised questions about systemic inequalities that marginalized based on class, race, and sex. Indeed, the neighborhood assemblies were seen as a place to give voice to those who had been denied access for self-rule, and as such were discussed among the early organizers as inherently feminist. This was an audacious project, and many factors made it difficult to bring to fruition, not the least of which was the amount of volunteer time it would take to organize and coordinate the various neighborhood assemblies. To meet this need, it was decided that a partnership between the city, Women's Studies, and Citizen Action of New York would be formed to apply for funds through AmeriCorps that would bring approximately nine VISTA volunteers to help build the neighborhood assemblies. The proposal called for community organizers, educators, and coordinators for media and economic development. The volunteers were, be, were to be distributed between the three partners. It was an ambitious project, and we received a sizable award for a three-year period with much initial support from the AmeriCorps officials. Women's Studies had two VISTA volunteers placed in its offices. One was to pay special attention to the needs of the women in the various neighborhood assemblies, helping to make available campus resources, and in particular, resources provided by Women's Studies faculty and students to support efforts to empower the women who had long been denied leadership positions within their own communities. The second VISTA shared in these responsibilities but was also to conduct regular trainings for the other VISTA volunteers that relied largely on a body of feminist scholarship focused on the interconnection between feminism, community activism, social justice, and civic engagement. She also taught a course as a lower level course entitled Feminism and Activism that captured freshmen and sophomores earlier in their educational process who became involved in many of the civic engagement projects. During the first year, VISTA volunteers worked with community residents to establish seven neighborhood assemblies. There were a multitude of difficulties, personalities, personal agendas. Um, the established power brokers, as you can well imagine, were not particularly enthusiastic about supporting the distribution of power in this way. <laughs> However, the opportunities this provided to the partners and their constituents were great. From a women's studies perspective, engage, this engaged students 
increased discussion in the community about women's issues. Um, for example, there was a huge discussion about why it appeared that mostly women were doing the work of the neighborhood assemblies, um, why it was that mostly women were, uh, uh, the, were single heads of household, why most of the women were uh, you know, engaged in various other kinds of community activities and were stretched to the max in terms of their available volunteer hours. The partnership gave the program a more visible, that is the Women's Studies Program, a more visible and active presence in the community and, and some increased status on campus because of our success in obtaining the AmeriCorps funding. Though I would say that status was a bit marred by the fact that we actually didn't get administrative over overhead dollars to the campus. So we weren't quite um, on, on our research foundation's radar. Over the following two years, the VISTA volunteers focused their efforts on three assemblies. Among projects that came out of this was a project to encourage the neighborhood assemblies to propose, um, to submit proposals for building their own parks. This was to address a number of issues. In part, neighborhoods were concerned about what their youth were doing. Um, so it was an opportunity to create uh, a site for youth, but also it was intended to give um, teenagers an opportunity to learn certain skills such as carpentry, etc. Um, we were coordinating with some of the labor unions who were donating some of the time and effort to do that kind of training. Um, it was a difficult project and I want to discuss a little bit more of the neighborhood uh, park project uh, towards the end of this discussion. However, there was an inherent difficulty to the VISTA project as AmeriCorps insisted that whatever we did, it could not be political. <laughs> These were the Bush years. <laughs> and so this was something greatly emphasized, whereas in other eras, there was a wider berth given to what would count as political. From the get-go, all the partners were very much aware of the slippery slope we faced. As feminists, many of us often say, um, the personal is political, so it's hard to get out of that paradigm. But then there was also the fact that we were partnered with a community group whose main focus was to do community organizing. And we were also partnered with the city government. It's hard to imagine how any of this couldn't be political. By the third year, those who understood the potential of the neighborhood assemblies, once they had you know, come to fruition to a certain extent and seemed sustainable, organized a media campaign insinuating that the work we were doing um, was political. AmeriCorps came in to review um, the project, and though they were enthusiastic about Citizen Action's initial participation as a partner, they at this point insisted that Citizen Action could no longer be a primary part, be a partner in this project. Uh, it was difficult not to have Citizen Action and, and, and by extension the Working Family Party as part of this project because they were the main traders for the community organizers. Um, so we were scrambling on that level. AmeriCorps also wanted the university to become the primary partner as for some reason they assumed that we weren't political. Um, <laughs> um, the primary partner at that point had been the city. But the university in the end refused to do so because of the absence of the overhead administrative costs and because unofficially, of the, I was told, of the bad press. 
Despite this tremendous difficulty, there are some successes that will make this project a that have made this project a worthwhile endeavor. There are active neighborhood assemblies which have been very active and create opportunity for civic engagement that heretofore had been absent. Recently, these neighborhood assemblies proved absolutely essential to provide a network of support in assisting those devastated by yet another 500-year flood, um, our third in five years. My program continues to participate and now has a course, a regular course on feminism and activism that ties students to the civic engagement projects. And more importantly, as the program is engaged in redefining its own academic mission, there is a realization of importance of social justice projects as, feminist -based, as a feminist-based academic unit. In real terms, the assemblies have supported the, um, have also supported the candidacy of progressive candidates um, we, through the neighborhood assemblies, and I guess this way, uh, AmeriCorps was right, they are political. Um, in this, we elected our first African-American woman to city council. Um, our first core faculty member to women's studies is also a city council member. And he's just introduced um, legislation recognizing uh, a human rights board that though it will not have much political power, will nevertheless be able to try to navigate through the various uh, resources that are available. But one way that we as feminists often see the degree of our success is the extent to which men announce the achievements that we have reached as their own. And, <laughs> and, and here I want to refer back to the neighborhood parks. Recently, um, and I should say this is an addendum to the original paper. Recently, a colleague has received much notice about a book that he's entitled, quote, The Neighborhood Project, Using Evolutionary Theory to Improve My City One Block at a Time. Oh. And, and in, that, in that book, he describes how through his neighborhood projects and through his theories of evolutionary uh, development and social evolutionary theory, um, he's worked to get the neighborhood groups, he calls groups, not neighborhood assemblies, to um, build neighborhood parks um, without any mention of how these groups came into be prior to him and without recognition of the work that these people are doing in his city. So though um, it is disturbing to hear the kind of publicity that he is taking, I, in taking a step back, it's kind of nice to realize how successful we are. So, thank you. <laughs> so, again, I want to thank everybody for coming and thanking all the organizers also. It's really, really an honor to be here. So, um, today I'm going to talk about Project Survive, which is the rape and intimate partner um, uh, violence prevention program at City College of San Francisco, which is one of the nation's, if not the nation's largest uh, community colleges. We have 100,000 students and uh, 10 sites across the city. Um, we're located a short bus ride from San Francisco State University, which is one of California's four-year regional colleges. In 1980, that shows how old I am, the City College Women's Studies uh, Department co-chairs, a psychologist and sociologist, asked me to join them for a new team-taught course called Women in Violence, which they had patterned on a course at San Francisco State. With my training in the humanities, I hesitated at first. But as a social justice activist, I saw that I could make a contribution to the course by grounding it in a race and class perspective. 
political perspective. Also, the grassroots San Francisco women's movement had just hosted a large poetry reading at Glide Memorial Church, mm. Poetry from Violence, and published an anthology from the reading, so I had my textbook. <laughs> Women in Violence was initially a success, but enrollment dwindled as students in the early days of the digital re uh, revolution focused on computer courses at the community college. Ten years later, with computers becoming much more user-friendly, students had time for other electives again. So in the early 90s, we relaunched Women in Violence, continuing the interdisciplinary nature of the course, though by that time I was its sole instructor. Also by then, I had gained a decent level of ex expertise. As an adjunct instructor, I supplemented my living by working at various nonprofits. And um, in 1985, I had landed a job as a rape prevention education program coordinator at the Women's Resource Center of UCSF. UCSF is um, the UC University of California Systems uh, Medical Center campus. There was a comparable program in each of the other eight UC campuses. UCS UCSF hired me primarily for my classroom teaching experience because the job involved making presentations. My counterparts at the other UC campuses presented to undergraduate students, and some of them trained undergrads as peer educators. At UCSF, my audiences generally consisted of administrative support staff with an occasional presentation at grand rounds with the doctors and one or two presentations in medical student classrooms. My early concern about not having enough expertise was actually replaced early on by a secure understanding that survivor and other grassroots activists formed the core knowledge base in sexual violence prevention and intervention. Though I'm grateful for the scholarship that enhances my course materials, I'm still committed to the survivor and grassroots base of the sexual violence prevention movement. While I was working at UCSF, a colleague at San Francisco State approached me for assistance in developing a rape prevention program based on the UC model. And then, with the help of many feminists at City College, including a college board member, we launched Project Survive in 1993. First as a pilot project, partially uh, funded by the Associated Students, and then as a formal program one year later. I was hired as full-time instructor to coordinate the program. Women in Violence became the politics of sexual violence, and we added to it a companion course, Ending Sexual Violence Peer Education, which trained students to give the actual presentations. Given that City College students are primarily working class and don't have the time to volunteer as students in the UC system or private colleges might have, we lobby for paid positions through our college lab aid funds. That first year, the sole peer educator and I delivered 60 presentations. We now have a team of 35 to 40 peer educators who deliver 400 presentations each academic year, some bilingual Spanish-English uh, at the Mission District campus and some Chinese-English at the Chinatown campus. About half of those 400 are designated Project Survive presentations, and another half are part of our five-year-old spin-off program, Expect Respect SF, which now serves all 16 San Francisco public high schools. Here's how that program started. In the late 90s, after Project Survive was firmly established at the college, the mother of one of our peer educators, a public school teacher, asked us to make a presentation in her classroom. But in order to do that, we had to be approved by the San Francisco Unified School District which, and we got the approval, and that put us on a list of presenting organizations. And then I then began receiving phone calls from other high school teachers who wanted us to present in their classes. At the same time, a frequent comment on the evaluation forms that everybody fills out after one of our presentations um, was, uh, they, said, they said, go to the high schools, go to the high schools. Okay, so clearly there was a need. So I talked to some of the teen dating violence prevention workers at the local community-based organizations, the CBOs, about setting up a collaborative made up of their organizations in the college. 
They were reluctant because to keep their grants, they had to deliver a certain amount of presentations each year. I also think they may have had some suspicions about linking up with the academy, though being at the lower tier of the academy, City College should have presented much less of a threat. Coming from an activist background myself, however, I understood their fears as we saw some professional feminists co-opt activist games, as Dara referred to. Nevertheless, I persisted and assigned one of the peer educators to the task of contacting high school um, health teachers to see how many of their classrooms were being served with dating violence prevention presentations. Only about a third, or maybe even less than a third, responded yes. Aimed with this information, I returned to the CBOs. <laughs> it was persistent. By that time, some of our peer educators had graduated and were getting hired into the CBOs. Their obviously culturally competent and politically grounded backgrounds encouraged the CBOs to take another look at us. Also, the peer education training class now had an active service learning component, which places our students in the CBOs for volunteer work. So the organizations had another opportunity to evaluate the politics and perspective of the college program. In 2005, I assigned for their service learning project a group of really smart and wonderfully um, hardworking students to the job of organizing a community meeting with the goal of setting up the community and college collaborative. Fifteen people came to that meeting, which generated a lot of excitement. By talking more openly with each other and reviewing the results of our, our informal survey, the CBOs realized there was plenty of work for everyone. Taking the lead um, at the meeting, they then insisted we commit to a model that linked sexist violence to other forms of social and political oppression. The students and I couldn't have been more in agreement. Over the next year, we met regularly to develop a mission statement, an organized structure, and a curriculum, and we're fortunate enough to receive a grant from the David B. Gold Foundation, a local San Francisco foundation. We launched Expect Respect SF in fall 2006, serving three schools that first year. Over the next three years, we added another four to five schools um, each year, so that by fall 2010, we were serving all 16 public high schools, um, mostly in their freshman year health classes. We try to get them at 14 and 15. By the time they're seniors, that you look at the, you look at the 14-year-olds, they go, tell us about sex. You look at the seniors, they go, you don't have anything to tell us about sex. <laughs> okay, so we decided on a three-session format with the college peer educators delivering the first two sessions and one of the CBOs scheduled for a follow-up session. We later expanded the CBO base from five to 10 active organizations in order to ensure coverage in all the schools. So there was plenty of work for everyone. All of the grant money goes to funding the college peer educators and each CBO does their usual work with the added attraction of Project Survive serving as a scheduling agency. We received a second grant from the foundation and are gradually institutionalizing the program via continued lab aid support a creative, work, a creative use of work study and CalWORKS, which is this, our state's uh, welfare to work program, a few volunteers and additional administrative support for the Women's Studies Department. So preparing for this talk, I realized um, the, the, the foundation for this program, the strength of it, I could call the three A's. So here are the three A's. Anchor. With a tenured community college instructor as a lead member of the collaborative, the program can survive the two to three year average stay of CBO teen dating violence prevention educators. We started the program, what, five years ago? And in the, the core organizations that helped start us, um, they have, there have now been, we are now in the fourth person in that job. So the, the turnover, the rapid turnover in nonprofit organizations um, was, we've never been able to make this program work without some, some stability. So we've got the anchor at the community college. Then we have authenticity. By using student educators age 25 and under, sometimes known as near peers of high school students, we present youth with people they can identify with and believe in. Accountability. 
By regularly meeting as a community collaborative, we remain accountable to our mission statement. And this is the mission statement we, we established all those years ago when we first met. Our work is linked to social movements that acknowledge and resist systematic political, economic, and social oppression. Health education that seeks to prevent and repair physical, sexual, and psychological injury in teen dating relationships, as well as older adult relationships, must address the links among various forms of oppression, such as racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, heterosexism, transphobia, ageism, ableism, and anti-Semitism, as well as anti-Arabism. We also believe that preventive education among youth is the best way to decrease interpersonal violence in the future older adult population. In this way, we assure a strong bridge between activism and the academy. Uh, Geraldine Fisher, oh, it's there. Um, my, <laughs> um, my bio is in the program, and if any of you want context for knowing why I'm talking about what I'm talking about and who I am otherwise, um, you can refer to it there. Um, I, the, the paper that I'm reading today is, um, call, I'm calling it Making a Difference, not a very unusual title, but I think that's really the core of what I want to talk about. In Half the Sky, journalists Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun write vividly and movingly, describing through narrative their efforts to save abused girls across the world. To read their stories of both success and failure, no one could easily deny their claim that promoting gender equality is crucial to combat global poverty. Calling this the girl effect, they show how training women and giving them means toward gainful employment with which they then finance younger relatives' education releases women's power as economic catalysts. While social problems are complicated enough to be insoluble in their entirety, Christoph and Wudun show that every small victory is hugely important. When students in the course that I teach, Gender in the Workplace, read Half the Sky, they recognize that their activism projects, which involve seemingly droplet-sized contributions to tackling the big bias picture, can indeed make a difference. Kristoff and Wudun repeat an often-told parable that students take to heart. Hundreds, maybe thousands of starfish have been washed up onto the shore of a beach. Probably some of you have heard this. A young boy stops to pick up one at a time, throwing them into the water. An older man questions him. What are you doing, son? You see how many there are. You'll never make a difference. And the wise child responds, it sure made a difference to that one. Activism incorporated into a college course offers students the opportunity to turn their growing base of knowledge and their tools of analysis into making a difference. A women's and gender studies course with a service learning or civic engagement component doubly empowers by helping students to develop a deeper lifelong feminist consciousness while promoting skills necessary to work toward feminist social change. In assignments and through class discussion, students are challenged to test theory against their interactions with and observations of those serving causes and women in need. 
Students report being inspired by the energy, motivation, dedication, and hopefulness they imbibe through exposure to career activists who have agreed to supervise their projects. Thus, in the best of scenarios, which happens, thankfully, more often than not, the civic engagement project simultaneously grows the student as an academic learner and also as a social issues advocate in her community. Social change can begin with observing and analyzing inequity. But change requires that people not only analyze problems, we must also arrive at concrete strategies to transform what's not fair. Women's and gender studies students have more success in their field work if they begin their placement a month after classes start, in my experience, instead of starting from the get-go. We wait a month. Um, first, benefiting from didactic training to make more meaningful their partnership with the community. Without exposure to theory, students may not understand in sufficient complexity the nature of ongoing struggles against structural impediments. As Charlotte Bunch has said, theory keeps us aware of the questions that need to be asked. It makes us conscious of the choices that we make daily among different theories, so that what we learn in each activity will lead to more effective strategies in the future. Theory thus grows out of and guides activism in a continuous spiraling process. From the teaching end of the spectrum, like most academic projects that are launched by commitment to a far-reaching ideal, a women's and gender studies course with a civic engagement component rewards as it challenges. I should say here that this, this course is not wholly devoted to the civic engagement component, that there are, are, there's a breadth of readings that students have to do and assignments that ostensibly have nothing to do with the civic engagement. So I'm speaking out of that context. Uh, gender in the Workplace at Ostos Community College in the South Bronx is designed to foster understanding of unfair practices and attitudes that affect gender equity historically and today in the workplace. That is, to gain knowledge about historical conditions deterring gender roles at work, determining gender roles at work. To learn about gendered politics in the workplace, and we often call this, who makes the coffee? We also focus attention on how the construction of gender creates issues for men regarding their family life, ideas about their ideas about leadership and their employment choices as they pertain to gender to gender it's important to emphasize that the civic engagement project occurs within the scope of a course that otherwise emphasizes a full component of interdisciplinary readings about the history of women and work studies about family and work balance feminist narratives about leadership short stories and poems about gender and labor global activism, gender and communication, sexual issues, blah, blah, blah. As students learn from their texts to examine from feminist standpoints issues and experiences that promote a structural analysis of difference in visibility and privilege and power, they become more confident in observing their agency's objectives and in addressing gender, race, class, and sexual orientation. Soon, students are increasingly able to integrate analysis with ground-level praxis based upon, quote, major systems of oppression that are interlocking. This is part of the definition of feminism from the Kumbahi River Co uh, Collective, which is in uh, this bridge called my back. However, students come to, sometimes students come to a course with a civic engagement component resistant to working outside the usual academic routine of reading and writing assignments. Uh, they, students take this course because it has within it at City University, we have something called a writing intensive requirement. And so um, 
I, I developed the course as a writing intensive course knowing that students wouldn't normally get into a course that had so many different functions within it and was quite complex in terms of what they had to do and carry out. Um, as one student said quite honestly, I really didn't know if I would learn anything important and even know, or more so if I could offer anything important from the achievable goals my group set with the Hunger Project. Before we met with the staff, I didn't see what good could come of my going, a couple of meetings, going to a couple of meetings and then working to bring awareness to other college students. I mean, how was this going to make a dent in hunger? But now that I've completed the semester, I see there's a benefit for everyone. Uh, for students, even when you're just editing brochures, you're representing the organization, or if you're representing the organization behind a table at a street fair, you're suddenly connected with amazing people who dedicate their lives to living feminism out loud. And I consider it my responsibility to share what I'm learning at home, she concludes. Institutional context is all important in understanding the possibilities and limitations for our course. Community college students may not be singular in this regard today, but almost all work during hours they're not in class and or have families to care for at home. A typical internship in terms of hours required would be wholly incompatible with our students' stalwart efforts to juggle complex adult lives. In fact, many internships, as, as all of you probably know, require, understandably, as many as 45 hours of training, especially when students are working in direct service, like with hotlines or rape crisis centers, and that would be impossible. Um, transportation expenses incurred are also an issue for economically disadvantaged students. And what's so frustrating is that, you know, the students, our students, um, are the ones in, in the college where I teach are, you know, often most in need of this kind of professional experience, and yet, you know, on an ongoing basis where they could really be networking in a, in a sub substantive way and you know it's really difficult for them to manage that while they're in college and doing what they have to do. Fortunately, I've found that one can modify and adapt the conventional approach even without <coughs> sacrificing the project's integrity. I've done this by assigning the completion. They have this field work component to the class, but field work, you know, it's, it's, it's not exactly what field work is defined as. Um, I call, I, what I asked them to do was to, to accomplish one achievable goal with an organization. This particular adaptation helps greatly in mitigating our students' time constraints. So in the modified civic engagement experience I've designed, students don't have to adhere to a certain number of contact hours with the work site. Perhaps especially in a community college, allowing students to pace themselves can be crucial. There's some research about that. After I introduced the civic engagement project, at our first meeting, students are assigned to research several organizations in New York City with whom they'll have a chance to work during the semester. Uh, in the weeks that follow, I bring in representatives from the organizations to talk to the whole class about what they do, who benefits, uh, so that students have a sense of what feminist activism looks like uh, in New York City, at least. And then in conjunction with the representatives, students develop they're put into small groups or they assign themselves into small groups and they develop one achievable goal that the group can do together for the semester. Um, and um, they also have an opportunity to work individually on that goal. They can divide that task so that they can control their time. That's essentially the motivation for that. And they also, um, we talk about it in class, how their progress is going, and they do a presentation, a kind of mosaic at the end of the semester. Um, the other thing that I've done in this class, um, because I felt that this wasn't enough um, of, of activism 
is to assign them a research essay. And the research essay has them um, working with an issue that is presented to them or that they've observed in the organization that they're committed to for the semester. And they write the research essay that has a historical perspective and it also has a theoretical perspective, but it also involves interviewing people from the work site so that the research paper, and it talks about, they process their own experience in the research paper as well in the context of this particular issue that they've, um, so let me just see if I can jump to a couple of examples. Um, oh, one thing I want to say real quickly is that there are advantages and disadvantages and that some of the students at the community college, and this is maybe more important than the examples, um, some of the students at the community colleges, you can well imagine, and maybe this is true across the spectrum, have had direct experience with some of the social problems that the agencies address. And this can be both a benefit or an advantage. Um, one, it, it was an advantage in this way. I mean, some students opt out of working for certain agencies because it's just too close to the surface. But this one man in our class uh, worked with Safe Horizon, and he spoke emotionally and powerfully to a group of adolescent boys during a safe dates meeting about his experience as an abused youth and what he's done to diminish psychological scarring. And then he went on to write his research paper about men who have been abused and how that abuse carries forth into their adult lives and what some of the issues around shame are for men in particular. So that's the, you know, the way it works at its best. Um, real quickly, I think I will just give you a couple of examples. Um, okay. So one st students working with Now New York City worked as escorts to women seeking ab abortions at clinics here in New York, where anti-choice intruders often waited outside to waylay prospective clients. And one student wrote a research paper going back to Margaret Sanger and Emma Goldman and comparing their work and um, talking about the global gag rule. Um, and, you know, so that, so that they have a sense, a broader sense. Students with the Hunger Project worked on leadership um, and how that empowers women. And the students working with the Latina Institute for um, Reproductive Freedom um, did a survey with college students. And they gave that survey to the um, organization and they used that on their website. Um, so overall, would I do it again. In fact, I will. And although there are numerous <laughs> logistical challenges, and there really are, um, you know, there, it's, it's a complex operation. We were all surprised at how easy it became to make an impact in the community and the mindsets of students. As I revisit the course this coming spring, I'm confident that the text in conjunction with the civic assignments foster feminist consciousness, foster a penchant for an understanding of collective social action and more engaged citizenship, promoting our college and our students as agents of change. One benefit that, that I think was mentioned before is that the college also enters into the community and becomes seen as a real viable partner, um, which is important for the students to feel like emissaries, that they're there you know, being ambassadors, if you will, for the college itself. Thank you. This is a wonderful um, panel as a way of thinking about grounded examples of what Manzella um, Raffaele was um, discussing at her um, powerful keynote that opened our session today. Um, I'm Stephanie Gilmore. I, uh, Susanna and I are um, complete co-authors on this paper. Um, just in the interest of the time, though, I'm, I'm going to present it. Um, you will hear me say, I, Susanna, um, and that would be a reference to her. 
Um, it seems rather awkward, given that she's actually right here. Um, but again, um, I do want to emphasize that we both are complete um, collaborators, conspirators on this, um, on this work. Um, the term uh, divestment usually refers um, to the drawing back or withdrawing of economic support of an entity on moral grounds, the most prominent historical example being encouragement for companies and states to divest from South Africa in the 1980s to put global pressure on the country to end apartheid. Uh, this practice continues in various forms today, um, including among colleges and universities that are encouraged to consider where to invest college endowments and to consider moral politics um, of buttressing immoral and violent practices on the parts of companies, corporations, and countries. Um, in spring 2009, I, Stephanie, um, suggested to colleagues at Dickinson College, where I was completing my first year on the tenure track in the Women's and Gender Studies Department, that we consider what I then called um, cultural divestment. Let me explain um, a bit here about what happened. Um, in that semester, again, this is spring 2009, I, I started my introduction to Women's and Gender Studies um, as I do at every class meeting with announcements from the students about happenings um, and events on campus that would relate to their classmates. Um, one student brought up a flyer that she had seen in the student union and wanted to discuss it, specifically about a um, college fraternity requiring pledges to obtain photographs of women's breasts and vaginas and, quote, to take a picture with a faggot. At the first request, students seemed to think that um, it was acceptable, an individual's choice, um, to flash her breasts or to paint the Dickinson D on her thigh to prove that the photo of the vagina was authentic. We continued our discussion in class that we'd engaged all semester about whether or not such actions are freely chosen. And of course, the Intro to Women's and Gender Studies course does push students to engage with the dynamics between individual actions and structures that guide, normalize, criminalize, or stigmatize uh, one's behavior. Perhaps not surprisingly, students expressed universal shock at the second request. And we had a terrific impromptu discussion about what a faggot looks like, how one might target a faggot, and how this language reinforces stereotypes about LGBT and queer people and reproduces heterosexual privilege. But we also moved it beyond the abstract. I used this moment to let students know that if they need a photo with a faggot, um, please come take a picture with me. And although I'd come out earlier in the semester, this became a way, uh, this way of coming out had a different meaning and brought a different weight to their experiences. Whereas they might have kept the conversation going in the abstract, they were now in a room with a faggot. Um, she is their professor, someone they see twice a week. And any wall between the classroom and the rest of their Dickinson experience was shattered. Now, I took this story um, to a joint meeting of the President's Commission on Women and on Diversity, two separate commissions, but they had one meeting. Um, <laughs> yay, progress. And it did come to us a surprise um, to some uh, to hear a new and untenured faculty member talking to them about the ways in which heterosexuals are overprivileged in our society and how that privilege comes at the expense of queer people. And I came to this position as a faculty member. Um, I came to this position at Dickinson. Um, riveted by the opportunity to work with undergraduates whom I knew um, would have most, if not all, of the economic and social props to ensure their success upon graduation. I came up through public education in grade and high schools as well as public university for um, undergraduate and graduate degrees. 
Uh, my campuses were so large that there was always a table, always a letter writing campaign, even a protest um, of some sort on campus. Uh, but I knew when I arrived at Dickinson, and this was um, after working for two years at Trinity College in Hartford, that I would be directly immersed in training and education of the elite. Um, that is, after all, a mainstay function of liberal arts education, and I relished how this job represented for me um, my own hard work, but I thought also some good social good fortune. Um, so at this meeting, I would never simply complain, um, which isn't so simple in academia because rocking the boat um, can have very negative effects, especially for women, um, but would also suggest alternatives. Um, just two years prior, at students' behest, the college president launched a socially investing, socially investing discussion group en route to economic divestment from funds that supported heinous crimes, um, including the ongoing genocide in Darfur. I posited that we might consider cultural divestment from the practices of racist, sexist, homophobic, elitist behavior and discuss what that might involve by way of programming, education, sharing of information and knowledge, and cultural acknowledgement en route to reviving our community. So it is not um, a potentially menacing environment for some, and instead, instead one that is accessible um, to all. Um, I don't want much. <laughs> um, Susanna, um, my colleague, and the first director of the Women's Center on campus, which I think says something right there, um, was on board. I, Susanna, in fact pursued Women's Center work at Dickinson because of a commitment to cultural divestment a practice that at that time I would have na named dismantling privilege. The miseducation that I had earned, both actively and passively, was reproduced in the small liberal arts college, Abitus. Um, the norms and regulations of small private liberal arts institutions had built a culture of white middle class womanhood in particular and ruling class patriarchy in general that had shaped and blessed me while guiding me or addressing me in ignorance. The generosity of others, fortune and hard work had enabled me to work toward divesting from my role as an agent of the violence that is inherent to this institution in class. Ideally, a women's center director lives praxis and can apply, transform, and assess her or his work in iterative cycles that advance equity and education. My goal was to use this iterative process to reconstruct a more complete and just portrait of a privileged social identity and institution and to do so with daily pragmatic impact. Institutional investments, in this case the literal investment of a women's center and its director, are prime sites where violence is resisted, disputed, or ignored. This praxis was at the core of how I saw my director role, and it was fortuitous that Stephanie and I shared the commitment to cultural divestment. From day one, we found ourselves to be allies, especially with respect to ending all forms of violence. When we interviewed for our respective jobs, we had been told several times over um, several times over that sexual violence was a problem on our campus. I, Susanna, was told more obliquely. It was an, it was an issue of frequent but not in-depth conversation, whereas I, Stephanie, was told directly that it was a serious problem and that the college was looking into and needed ways to address it, but often from an, as an isolated issue. New faculty in women's and gender studies, it seemed, was a sign of such commitment, both to other faculty I encountered as well as to students who sought out advice and support. This minimizing discourse mirrors how survivors describe or discuss systemic violence, particularly violence against women. And lacking in direct violence prevention training, I, Susanna, did not read into these lacunae the need 
of the community until I arrived. Indeed, neither of us um, could really know what and how much any one person or the group as a whole needed, and we spent much time engaged in different types of triage. Regardless, it was telling that students and colleagues alike took time to give us this information before we were even offered the jobs, making us aware of what we would be expected to face if we were offered and accepted our current jobs. From a pedagogical perspective, I, Susanna, would host events at the Women's Center on topics ranging from dating on campus to sisterhood among women and conversations that would invariably return to the wound at the core of the community sexual assault, sexual harassment, fear and mistrust of institutional representatives, and a general sense of a lack of safety. These very same conversations emerged in different contexts, in classes that both Susanna and Stephanie taught, as well as in different Greek life meetings. For example, I, Stephanie, um, have been invited to facilitate on topics of sexual and racial violence. One of the elements of cultural divestment then was an increasing awareness that whether we engaged violence ending um, work or not, our students would bring it to us and would demand institutional accountability, including clear policy and protocol, concern about particular cases. Um, they would also insist on educational tools to increase their capacity uh, for working against violence. In short, although the classroom and the student affairs learning environments may not have been marked as particularly socially engaged on the issue of violence against women, in our position as a faculty member and as director of the Women's Center, we appeared to be leading the charge um, on campus and we therefore were called into civic engagement. Um, yet both the assumption and practices we engaged to work um, on ending violence brought us into contact with more of the violence um, because our work is both highly visible and profoundly marginalized. It is subject to scrutiny while deferred for substantial consideration until events propel the issue into the limelight. Um, this is, of course, no, um, in no way unique to Dickinson. Um, sexual violence has been a major issue on this, on this campus, but also on campuses around the country and the world. At Dickinson, students launched two protests, a one-day protest in the spring of 2009 of about 100 and so students, um, and a 300-student-strong protest in the spring of 2011 that involved students occupying the administration building for four days. Right on. <laughs> and we have both put a great deal of physical and intellectual labor, not to mention a great deal of uncompensated emotional labor, into this issue, talking with students one-on-one -on -one in classrooms or student group meetings, addressing colleagues, uh, many of whom, uh, surprisingly or not, are on the same page and more. Because of our different roles on campus, the outcomes of our actions with respect to violence, and we can use the example of these two student-led protests, are very different. I, Susanna, initially began uh, my work with orientation programs and outreach, working through generations of echoing complaints about safety and violence against women. The violence was most often represented as a thorny cultural issue, which it certainly is, um, rather than how it might be presented from a feminist perspective. I engaged in significant lateral education and in self-education, but the acuity of the need was unclear until the first of the two protests took place in the spring of 2009. Protest organizers and participants who marched across campus during a trustee meeting weekend issued a series of demands echoing the concerns I had read in files and shared in my own administrative and organizing work. For me, this protest was a culmination of events in which I had been a direct or indirect participant, whether lateral education among my colleagues to dispel rape myths, organizing work among people who provide direct service on campus and elsewhere, or education among students around wrong culture and the objectification of women. 
For many others, this protest marked the moment of peak narrative drama in the story of how Dickinson addressed or did not um, sexual violence issues. From within my role, um, administrative role, it seems to me that the quiet pushing of daily advocacy becomes erased or rendered irrelevant, losing its signification or contribution when major public events take place. Yet it is precisely this erasure that makes coalition work effective. My role, Stephanie, as a faculty member was not an issue with respect to sexual violence, but my role as a faculty member in women's and gender studies was a different story. I had no pressure whatsoever to talk about sexual violence in or beyond the classroom with the understanding that the classroom was really the only space I would occupy um, and I was designated to occupy that. Mm -hmm. But as a women's and gender studies scholar who truly embraces the need to create space for people whose voices are often marginalized within the academy, which includes victims and survivors, I took it upon myself to speak out and devote days in the classroom over to sexual violence. In the course of these events, we realized that we could not divest from a sexually violent culture in the academy because the academy itself is inherently and by design a violent place. There are two layers to this violence. Um, what Joan Scott has noted, um, though certainly not alone, as the institutionalization of feminist endeavors within the academy, quote, means its end as a campaign. Our research and professional activities seem to have lost their purposive political edge and their sense of dedication to building something larger than an individual career. At first blush, it is alarming that feminist allies might be complicit, even entrenched, in the violence that is the academy. In reality, though, both feminist and non-feminist here participated in the structural violence that creates barriers to cultural divestment. Neither is more shocking or problematic in operational terms. Both create distinct but converging barriers to the work we seek to do. We wanted, and still want, of course, to create a world without sexual violence, but we have to get beyond our confusion, dismay, anger, and more to come to terms with the fact that we cannot divest from violence or even talk about it because it comes with such tremendous risks, um, such as what happens when you wake up in 2011 and go to work at Sterling Cooper. Um, I'm gonna move forward here to, uh, thank you. Um, um, okay, so I, I wanna move forward in the interest of time to talk about some of the things that we actually work um, to do. We may want to divest culturally from practices of violence, um, but in our roles and what we have learned over the last three, um, going on three and a half years, is that we also have to invest in coalitions that address the complexity of the institutional and interpersonal violence we absorb and respond to. To do so, we have found ways to support each other in our shared goals from our different spaces. Um, the first thing we do is we have to listen to each other, and this sounds so elementary, but how easy it is to forget to listen. Um, we have to listen to each other um, and to what each other can do and know on our own and each other's positions um, within the college um, and how to know that our positions may be at times at odds with one another. Um, for example, as a faculty member, I, Stephanie, can and did openly support the protest and was able to speak up about flaws in current policies and procedures, even got encouragement from other faculty members to do so. As an administrator, I, Susanna, cannot do so um, with the same ease, and um, Susanna is often called um, upon to put out fires, um, fires that, according to some, um, I stoke, so we have to sort of know, yeah. Yeah, um, yay team. Um, we also have to um, be accountable for the work that we do um, and to show up for it even when others don't. Um, for example, when I, Stephanie brought up the scavenger hunt, 
Um, nobody bought into the idea of cultural divestment. Um, the fraternity was expelled, but the practices were unevenly challenged um, at the institutional level as part of the um, problem and part of the structure of social violence, raising the question about privilege within an institution about traditional practices, the, the practices that buttress the tradition of any institution, right? such as annual events that are built on racism, sexism, and heterosexism, was dismissed because it would be disrupting tradition. Um, and nothing more came of conversations in large part because here I am just a faculty member um, and this became a boundary um, in terms of my job. From Susanna's position as an administrator, um, of course she is privy to a number of not for public consumption conversations in which colleagues will acknowledge the way that class and race privilege operate um, in the hazing example, for example, to execute violence against women. This acknowledgement was often made as tactical admission. If we know this to be true, what can we do to be effective in creating lasting cultural change? Um, how can an institution divest? Um, so despite um, this particular example, you know, we um, have had to recognize the ways in which we come into conversation. Um, we also have to check back in um, t with each other for structural support as well as emotional support. Um, we face a great deal of pushback and so sometimes we just have to stop, break down and have fun, um, but also come back to how we um, can really sort of work this together. Um, so we um, do occupy um, moderate and radical uh, flanks at the same time, um, but this is just some insight into some of the work that we do um, within our community. Thank you. So we have about 13 minutes for questions. Um, I'd love to hear from folks. Any questions, comments, responses? Yes. Many of um, our students, at least many of my students, I mean, don't really read newspapers, um, um, really aren't familiar sort of with basic political information or even like how the courts work or the Supreme Court, the importance of the Supreme Court. Um, and so, I mean, part of being engaged in any sort of a meaningful way means sort of understanding how these systems work and then how they can participate, um, you know, in them. And so there's sort of a core of knowledge that we need people to understand. Also with globalization, I mean, globalization is really the paradigm shift of our times. Um, and so sort of the, the, um, the violence that's part of the campus institutions is, is reflected in these broader, I mean, global structures. And ultimately, um, I mean, as bad as what we might face here um, is, um, almost a drop in the bucket compared to what's happening worldwide. Um, and so my, my question um, uh, to, to the, the panel is, in terms of, deal, in terms of um, trying to make a connection with today's students, I mean, I, I agree that one of the most effective ways is with these sort of small, small workshops or in our classes, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, um, um, well, A, do any of you use social media in any way? Um, and um, I mean, how do we address the fact that for some students, um, I mean, perhaps some of the more traditional modes of, of learning that we rely on, or, or maybe perhaps older generations rely on, um, may work for them in, in different ways. And I'm so curious how you might address that. And A, do, is social media a part of any of your work? Or, um, um, and I think also we really do need in the academy, uh, I mean, I'm a history teacher, and I think we really do need you know, the history folks to talk more about the history of feminism um, and to talk more about how political structures work and, and the economics people to talk about 
globalization and how it affects women and um, you know so that women's studies really truly is incorporated and I know in, in my books my history books um, that kind of incorporation is really not there for the most part which is just a comment in the courses that I teach where students are asked to do something outside of reading and writing many times they go to social media themselves and I think what's you know finally occurred to me is that I need to support this and not try to thwart them in using that information in their assignments and so for example in gender in the workplace when students have to research the organizations that they're going to commit to for the semester they often use their contacts in the social media in order to find out if anybody knows anything and all of that. They also, um, when they were designing a survey, one of the groups was designing a survey, and they did that through Facebook, and it seemed to work quite well, and the organization ultimately wanted it in a different form, but they were able to use what they could gather from their peers that way, and you know, they reached out to a gazillion people, and then they could somehow contain that within the scope of the assignment. So I guess I'm, I'm simply saying, and it's not a very profound response, that I think if we allow students to do what they do naturally, um, that they will find ways to meet the expectations we have even without necessarily doing conventional research. Something else? Um, I, you know, I have a, a mixed response to social media. Um, uh, but much more positive after the Arab Spring and the seeming the, the, the Facebook influence on it. But I, I talked to I have one of the career educators who's been in a program for years. She's 31, and so in my mind she's very young. In her mind she's old. Um, uh, uh, my son is 31, and I asked him about. My daughter got off of Facebook at 34. She said it took up too much time. My son said, "Well, Mom, I'm old, so I, don't ask me about young people." You know. So <laughs> okay. So this. So I have mixed mixed feelings. I think that you don't want to necessarily discourage it, although. You know, there, people will have their laptops open in class, which I've now stopped doing, allowing to do, because what I understood is they would be on Facebook to their friends, you know, while we're in class. And um, so this 31-year-old peer educator where I started said, you know, I, I love it. She said, you know, in our early 20s, we thought the revolution was going to happen. I thought, well, so did I, and so did my grandfather. But, <laughs> you know, because um, I had the same conversation with my grandfather, who was an anarchist, you know, how, you know, youthful expectations, and that, that those do cause revolutions and, and so forth. But she said, but now everybody says, spends so much time on Facebook, they don't have any time for that. So I think we have to be careful. I think, and I, this is a, a wild guess, is 10% is of Facebook and on the social media helping the movement, and 90% of it taking the time away mm -hmm. from face-to-face -face organizing. And that's not a con condemnation of it. It's mm -hmm. just a, a warning. Yeah. Hey there. I just want to thank you guys for sharing some really great, um, really great information about ways you're bridging activism in the classroom, because I think that that's a really important conversation that needs to happen more often. Um, I'm from the University of Ottawa in Canada, um, and my question is particularly for Leslie. Um, I am the advocacy and support listening coordinator at our student-run Women's Resource Centre there, and we've been doing for the past two years um, consent of sexy trainings with um, our student associations and our clubs and our frats and sororities, and it's been really successful, especially we've been collaborating with um, Carleton University, which is the other large university in our city. And so recently we've been trying to get these workshops into our high schools, but we've been having problems with how to frame it to be able to kind of um, move past a narrative that just solely talks about sexual violence and the reality of it, because that's so important, but we also want to be able to have conversations about, like, let's talk about how you negotiate consent and let's talk about, um, like, dating and, and alcohol and these types of things that all play factors and are realities for youth. But we don't know, we've been facing lots of barriers with 
the admin at these at high school level trying to be like, how do you frame these things to get into the schools, but then kind of do whatever we want when we're actually, once we're in there. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to any of the sort of ways you guys found that worked to frame these, these sort of discussions, but also um, I was wondering if you guys had had any success also reaching out to like street-based youth organizations as well that we, we try to work with as well because we often find they don't have access to these workshops in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good question about <clears throat> dealing with the administrators. First of all, be careful about saying one thing and doing another. I, I think it's better to be honest. Um, and it's okay to be honest about sex sexuality. One thing we say when we, we do a healthy relationship brainstorming, and what are the components, and of course no one brings up sex, and so we bring it up and we say good sex. So we kind of joke and we say we're not going to tell you how to do it, but we're going to tell you the components. Uh, but before we get into that, in the high schools, in well, actually in the high schools only, we say, you know, some of you might be thinking about having sex. Some of you might be having sex. Some of you may not want to have sex until you're married. So we give the whole range and we make everybody comfortable with where they're at. And we talk about how you never wanted to have sex because your partner says that you'll prove, you know, all those, those, those lines about you, what we'll do if you love me and so forth. Or um, if someone says you, everybody else is doing it. Well, first of all, we know by research, everybody else is not doing it, especially when they're 14. We mm -hmm. know that. The peer educators t told me I was wrong, that everyone was having sex. I said, no, they're not. You know, I looked at their faces, said they're not. And then the research proves, of course, it's more around 16, 17, that many young people start having sex. So, um, so you want to make, if, so being honest about talking about sex, but giving that range of, I don't, I'm not going to do it until I'm married, you know, which is the more conservative end, I think helps a lot. But you want to be honest with the administrators. You don't want to do a bait and switch. Um, and I can talk to you more about it afterwards, but it's really great what you're doing. Um, Street-based, well, we work with some of the CBOs, you know, like Hi-Fi Health Initiatives for Youth has a really great, um, you know, youth component. So we, our curriculum is, was developed by working with some of those organizations, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi. I'm so glad to see so many SUNY people down there. I'm a SUNY alum, and so it's great to see like public institutions represented. Um, Yay! I'm actually currently at SUNY Albany, which is, as far as I know, the last institution that has a women's studies teaching collective. So all eight of our sections of Intro to Feminisms are taught by peer educators. Um, it's dwindling, and it could be the last year because the administration obviously is doing a lot of restructuring around this, and. Um, it's really good for them because they don't have to pay faculty and these students teach, but at the same time, they kind of just let us live in our autonomous land. So I kind of wanted to talk about how feminist pedagogy comes into the classroom, you know, because I find it very powerful that students can teach it themselves and you kind of break down the hierarchy of like professor as expert and student as mm -hmm. someone who needs to be banked and filled in with knowledge. So how do we empower students beyond just like the semester of like an internship and going out um, kind of at a ped pedagogical level? I'll give you my quick answer to that because um, I know we're close to the end of time. But um, first, um, I, I, I would say that I find it very problematic to use free labor, that you know, women always give up their labor. And so, yeah, I understand the, the, the value of having peer educators in that situation. But at the same time, it is, I think, uh, you know, just university-wide is going to be viewed as a real problem. But having said that, um, I use, you know, a lot of techniques in my class. I, I mean, I, you know, bell hooks, um, you know, teaching to, to transgress. I mean, it's, it's a very important value that I think gets implemented within each classroom, or should be, in terms of how students then expect to be educated, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, a lot of what I have to do is untrain what has been a systemic 
process of, you know, sort of a, a, a structure that serves, well, I'll just say the capitalist production, productivity, right? So recentering it and empowering students is not just a, a one-time process. It has to be part of how we try to, to conduct these classes. And of course, there's a host of things that interfere with that, not the least of which is the grading process. Um, you know, for instance, again, in my institution, I, we have pressures to distribute grades sort of, you know, uh, across the board so that if there are too many A's, the chair of the department or program has to talk to the faculty about that kind of distribution. Um, you know, so how do you work within that, you know, one of the, at that level and, and try to reach the other goals of, of resituating educational processes? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. And I think it becomes part of the, um, the real conundrum, right? I mean that, you know, here we do um, a lot of great um, transgressive pedagogical work in one classroom or in one department that becomes um, aberrant to the entire educational, to the rest of their educational experience. So it's almost um, voyeuristic or tourist that you come in and like, ooh, look at all this like radical different pedagogy. None of my other classes are this way and they aren't going to become this way. And I think this, this speaks in part to some of their, um, actually things that are cutting across all of our papers about, um, you know, with the institutionalization of, of women's studies, women's and gender studies, however they're called, um, and what that um, really will sort of mean for the institution. Like, did women change the academy or did the academy change women? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're sort of running up into um, some pretty serious um, question marks about mm -hmm. what we've done to the academy. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, we are at a good time to step back and reflect. Mm -hmm. on, a, on a very concrete, quick note, um, n not theoretical, but really concrete. I think teaching students to process their own responses is one of the most yeah. powerful tools of feminist yeah. pedagogy. And that has to do with the activism that we do in our classroom, but it also has to do with their working in small groups and having students reflect on the roles that they've played and whether the groups were collaborative, whether they really did reflect um, a, you know, a kind of working together that's interdependent, and then having students, of course, process their experiences outside the classroom if they, there's an activist component so that they're looking at what they could do more, what they haven't done enough of, what they might like to do again, what they're successful at. Um, so, so students have a, 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 an experience with process that they can then perhaps consider as they go into other classrooms that are more resistant to that kind of pedagogy. I've, yeah, I would add to that also that teaching them that teaching, that learning that the classroom is one location of learning, of a nearly infinite number of locations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that students are, are very, we all are highly institutionalized people. Um, having participated sort of in a, um, a very loose way in the last year of the teaching collective at SUNY Buffalo in the women's studies program, that I think recognizing the concern about free labor at the same time, one of the things that was empowering about it was that people who sort of thought of themselves as young or not expert were able to enter into a really egalitarian teaching relationship, and I think that can happen in any space, in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very important for that, mm -hmm. to, for students to own that. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, everyone.